2: In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history
3: buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com.
1: Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news...
2: Welcome to the History Extra podcast.
0: Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. How did Medieval Ireland come to have 150 kings all at the same time? Who were the gallow glass? And what can Brehon Law Tell us about the country in the Middle Ages. Speaking to Emily Briffitt in this Everything You Wanted to Know episode, Professor Sean Duffy answers your top questions surrounding Irish life, language, and culture during the medieval period. Hi, Sean. Thank you so much for joining us on the History Extra podcast. Yes,
3: yeah, lovely to talk to you, Emily.
0: Right, so we are talking today all about Medieval Ireland and we're going to be answering lots of listener questions. So my first question for you would be, how is the Medieval period actually defined in Ireland?
3: Right, well that is a big question, Emily. I mean, Medieval Ireland, these things are artificial, as you can imagine. But we are talking probably about 1100 years of history. So from the dawn of Irish history, which is in the 5th century, the early 5th century, all the way to the point when medieval sort of drifts into modern, which you could line up a hundred historians and ask them to identify the point at which medieval becomes modern, and every one of them would give you a different answer. But I mean, typically in an Irish context, it's much the same as in a British context, because our Middle Ages, and in particular England's Middle Ages, are very closely intertwined when you get to the end of that period. So probably at the start of the Tudor Age in England, that's when our Middle Ages begin to fizzle out. So it's a long chunk of history and it's a long and complicated story. We, students of history, love turning points. And in English history, you have 1066, which is that sort of classic point. And everything afterwards seems to be different from what went before. And Ireland doesn't have a 1066, but it does have a thing called 1169. That's our version of 1066. So as England was conquered by the Normans in 1066, Ireland was conquered by the descendants of those Normans. At that stage, they had started calling themselves English in 1169. And so our history radically transformed after that. So in other words, you can say, therefore, you have a story that goes from about 400 to 1169, From 1169 to the Tudor age. that's, That's it in a nutshell.
0: And I think we're going to be very much talking about this timeline a little bit later on. But I've got a couple of other contextual questions, if you don't mind me asking first. So I was going to ask, was Ireland a unified country during the medieval period?
3: Yeah, I mean, Ireland, it depends what a country is. It's very easy for Ireland to develop a sense of itself as a country, because it is actually an island. I mean, it must be very difficult if you live in Central Europe in the Middle Ages to define yourself as a country. But when you live on an island, which was literally at the end of the world, I mean, the belief in the Middle Ages was that if you went to Ireland, and if you went to the west coast of Ireland, and you got into a little boat in Galway Bay at first light, and you started heading off, I mean, eventually, I mean, most people would probably have thought that you drop off the edge at some stage. There was nothing for the West. So it was very easy for the Irish, I think, to develop a sense of themselves as a nation in the Middle Ages. I mean, if you think back to even the word nation itself, it comes from the Latin word natio, which means birth. So if you live on an island and you haven't had many invasions, recorded invasions over the millennia, it is quite easy to get a sense of that everybody is related to everybody else, and everybody is therefore descended from the same common set of, of parents, and therefore you are related by birth, so you are a nation. So it's actually quite precocious in that sense. It's a very well-documented country, and right from the very early stages in the Middle Ages, the Irish are talking about themselves as a single people and as a single nation. So it's a very homogenous Society in that sense. So yes, depending on what a country is, I would define early medieval Ireland as a country. Yes.
0: What about regional identities? Were different regions perhaps distinct in sense of cultures or social or political factors?
3: The modern Irish word for a province is the word cuige, and which is also the modern Irish word for a fifth. A fifth and a province are the same word because originally there was a sense in Ireland that this island had been divided into five different parts. So each of them was a curiga, a fifth, and a province. And each of those provinces had its own king over it. And even within the provinces, there were lesser ranks of kings, because kings were a vital component of society. And so therefore there were these regional differences in the island between the different provinces, and you know, regular enough warfare between them all. But at the end of it, there was still a sense of unity amongst them. There was a quite an early sense that above all the different ranks of provincial kings, there was a national king, a high king, if you like, of the entire island. So yes, there were political rivalries and political divisions, but quite this sort of precocious sense of national identity that I was referring to.
0: Okay, with that in mind, how was society structured? You talked about kings and their big kings above kings almost, per se.
3: Yeah, I mean early medieval Irish society, it's a very hierarchical place. It's a relatively rigid society. At the top of that society there are the nobility, the royalty, and the people who are on a par with royalty, the the, you know, the top churchmen and the top members of the literati, the learned classes and so on, people who were regarded as in some ways almost sacred. There's quite a large class of those. I mean, at any one time in the early Middle Ages anyway in Ireland, there were probably, I would think, 150 men calling themselves king. So needless to say, if you can imagine the island of Ireland, a tiny dot in the Atlantic Ocean, if there are 150 kingdoms in that, they're very small, very local kingdoms. And at the bottom of that society, then conversely, there's a, quite a large category also of people who would, we would regard as slaves. It was a fixed component of society the enslaved i mean one of the most famous people from early medieval ireland is of course st patrick who was brought to ireland as a slave so slavery was certainly allowed for under law in the early middle ages as it was to be honest in most of europe and in between them then you you have the kind of the rest of us you know you have the commoner class i suppose the different grades amongst that the largest component so it's quite rigid that you have those three categories. There's a certain amount of movement between them. Where well, you've got royalty, commoners, and slaves. That would be the three categories of person that I would identify.
0: While we're talking about it, we've actually had a question from Mike Metcalf on Facebook. He's asked us could you tell us a little bit more about slavery in Ireland?
3: Yes, slavery is a strict component of society. There's a body of law that survives from early medieval Ireland called the Brehon Laws. They date from around the year 700, 750, that period. They seem to have a large collection of secular law of our society. And that was at a time when we didn't have a currency like most countries. We didn't have coins that we exchanged. So, you know, you had to have a different system for assessing the value of things And the system that was used, one of the things that most frequently listed was a female slave, a unit called a cumal, C-U-M-A-L. That's a female slave. And so that was a unit of currency, I suppose, at the time, which would indicate, I think, that it was a very common phenomenon. I was saying earlier that St. Patrick himself arrived into Ireland as a slave in the fifth century before securing his freedom. So people could be brought into slavery as a result of warfare or being captured in a rage, that kind of thing. But equally, there must have been a very large segment of society of people who were born into slavery and lived their lives in slavery. But inevitably, you hear very little about them. Needless to say, you don't hear their side of the story. But St. Patrick is a very unique individual. There can't be many places in the early Middle Ages in Europe where there is an individual who had been a slave who writes his life story. But most of what we know about St. Patrick comes from his own writings. He's left us two books, and in them he describes, you know, a relatively small extent, the details of it. But he does describe his own life in Ireland as a slave. And it's actually one of the things that... I mean, Ireland was no different from anywhere else in Europe at the time. People did practice slavery. But it is the case that in Europe... As the centuries moved on, people did become a little bit more concerned about the idea of enslaving other human beings, especially fellow Christians. When you get to the period of the Crusades, for example, where the idea that it's fine to go off and enslave an infidel starts to emerge, but conversely, the idea of enslaving a fellow Christian becomes frowned upon. And I was saying earlier that, you know, one of the great turning points in Irish history occurs in the 12th century when we were conquered by our nearest neighbor. I mean, one of the arguments that was used to justify that was the fact that we were still practicing something which had been phased out in England in the late 11th century. In the following century, we were still doing it. And it began to be seen as a marker of barbarianism or backwardness. So it was a phenomenon that existed all the way through, I think, in Ireland until the 12th century.
0: So why did slavery die out in the late 12th century?
3: When the Normans came into England in 1066, there were slaves in England. The English practiced slavery. The Normans, of course, were Frankish people, they considered themselves superior to the Anglo-Saxons that they had overthrown. And they very quickly, within a generation, they stamped out slavery in England. But we were still practicing it in Ireland at that time. And it's very hard to find evidence for it, though. I mean, it's certainly the case that there were slaves passing back and forth between, for example, the Dublin slave market and the Bristol slave market in the 11th century. But by the end of the 11th century, that Bristol market is gone and no more. Well, the probability is that, it's that slavery continued in Ireland, but the churchmen were very opposed to it. And the church was probably trying to stamp it out in Ireland. But I was saying that we were conquered from 1169 by England. And there is a reference to a council of the Irish church that took place at Armagh in the early 1170s in the immediate aftermath of Ireland's conquest by England. And they say that one of the things that they were meant to have said at that was that we deserved to be conquered because we had continued to practice slavery. So we brought our conquest upon ourselves by the continuance of it. But the chances are it was going to die out in the 12th century because the Christian church throughout Europe was seeking to get rid of it at that stage.
1: This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed.
2: That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra.
0: While we're talking about the people of Ireland, I wanted to ask you another question from Arms Show Tracker on X, which was formerly Twitter. Who were the Galloglass?
3: Well, now the gallow glass. we are getting through 1,100 years today and the gallow glass are a phenomenon from the latter part of that story, quite a distance later. I mean... After 1169, Ireland Ireland was a colony of England, not particularly successful. It was England's first colony, but not not its most successful. We've had a very complicated relationship, as you can imagine, with England as a result of that that phenomenon. And in the decades after and, and the immediate generations after our conquest by England, because it wasn't successful, there was continual Irish opposition to it, and Inevitably, that was a military objection to what the English were trying to achieve in Ireland. So the Irish looked around for allies to support them and to try and stiffen up their armies because we were very poorly armed by comparison with your mental image of a Norman knight coming to Ireland and their sophisticated weaponry and sophisticated tactics and armour and so on. The Irish had nothing to compare with that. One of the places that they found help, they found military resources to help them in their wars against the English, was in the Hebrides of the west coast of Scotland, those islands. Now, in Irish society, the Irish for the Hebrides was Inchigal, and so they recruited warriors from the Inchigal, and the Irish for warriors are Ogleg. so it had Gal Oglig came over to Ireland, and that term became anglicised as gallo-glass. So there were a type of professional soldiery who start to appear in Ireland in the aftermath of the English conquest of Ireland in the late 12th century, employed by Irish kings to try to counter the English conquest of Ireland and to build up the armies of the Irish. And So they become a regular phenomenon there.
0: Now, I really want to dive into the timeline of Medieval Ireland. But I think before we do that, there's one question I want to ask that kind of relates to what we've just been speaking about. And that is, I think, basically, I think there's a perception of the medieval period as very warlike. You've got the Crusades. There's lots of notable wars that particularly come to people's minds when you think of this period. Was Irish society as warlike as perhaps other regions or kingdoms at this time?
3: Yes, I suppose the answer is. I mean, whether it was any more warlike is another matter. I mean, one of the regular perceptions, to my mind, misconceptions about medieval Ireland is that it was a very violent place, riven by wars. Yes, there were wars and there was violence. Whether it was any more common in Ireland than elsewhere is another matter. We are very fortunate in Ireland that we have a very strong and continuous Stream of historical documentation from the early Middle Ages in a type of chronicle, annal. These annual records of events. So, the name "annual" suggests that the name that they acquired, which is annals. So, there literally there is a year by year record of what occurred in Ireland, probably contemporaneous from about the year six hundred onwards, and they are written by clerics in monasteries who had a particular fascination with the doings of the military and the fighting classes, the sort of warrior contemporary classes. So if you're dependent entirely on annals, it looks like a litany of battles. But I don't think it gives a very balanced... I mean, it doesn't record the doings of ordinary people. You know, when Joe Soap decided to put a new thatch on his house or to plant some crops in his garden or something, it doesn't get a mention. But if there's a battle, it's going to be be mentioned. So that is a tendency to accentuate the violent side of of society. I think it's been overdone. And if you draw up a list of all of the kings of medieval England, who died by violence, coup, killed by their own siblings, locked up in a tower and vanish, and so on, there's probably more of them died violently, I think, than is true of, of Irish kings. So yes, it was a violent society, but let's not. Forget about the fact that some of the places which we regard as being at the the centre of European civilisation were in their own way equally, equally violent in the Middle Ages.
0: Now, you mentioned some of our historical sources. Ireland has such a reputation for really rich historical material. Why is this? And how has so much survived?
3: Yeah, it's an interesting one, and I've often thought about it. I mean, one of the things that happened to Ireland how how can I put this? You know the way when you get a history book, there's a timeline of the, all the events, important dates in a country's history, but you never see a timeline of the things that didn't happen. And sometimes it's the things that didn't happen that are, are the most important. And in in Irish context, one of the things that marked it out from the rest of early medieval Europe was the fact that Ireland was not conquered by Rome. So the Romans were, you know, Conquering all Europe, North Africa, Asia Minor, and so on, they never got around to Ireland. They conquered most of Britain, but not Ireland. That's not that they couldn't. It's that they didn't. They didn't get around to it. But it did mean that we were outside the European mainstream, I think, for the early centuries of the common era. But in the 5th century, something happened in Ireland which has still gone relatively unexplained because we can never recover how it happened, and it was a graduate process. But the Irish converted to Christianity voluntarily in the 5th century. Most countries around the world became Christian at the point of a sword through the ages, but the Irish seemed to have chosen to become Christians. So in doing so, they were adopting the religion of Rome, the religion of the Roman Empire. So suddenly they became Christian overnight. The language of the Christianity was the Latin language. Now, if you lived in France in the early Middle Ages, you know, Gaul in the early Middle Ages, or you lived in what is now Spain in the early Middle Ages or Italy, the language that you were speaking anyway was a version of Latin, you know, sort of vulgar Latin. But when the Irish embraced Christianity, they had to become experts in Latin overnight. So they had to establish not just churches, but schools so that the clergy could learn Latin, so they could read the Bible and say Mass and so forth. So the Irish did acquire, over the course of the 5th and the 6th centuries AD, quite a proficiency in Latin scholarship. And as a result of that, they began to write very extensively in Latin. And we still have many of those remains ever since. The other thing that they did, though, as well, which we can sometimes forget about, is that The Irish presumably had a very rich oral tradition before they embraced Christianity, but none of that has survived because they were an entirely illiterate people. But when they acquired Latin, they acquired an alphabet. And so they began to, however it's done, transliterate their language to the sounds of Latin and began to write in the vernacular. So we have from early medieval Ireland a very extensive corpus of vernacular literature, which you tend not to get in the European mainstream, where most people wrote just in Latin or in the East in just in Greek. So, in that way, they were exceptional. And that body of material in both Latin and vernacular is incredibly rich. And, you know, it's one of the reasons why that period of Ireland's history is regarded as its golden age.
0: So, as you say, just to be clear, we know very little of the pre Christian Ireland per se.
3: Yes. I mean, you, Emily, could go to a library, and the shelves would be groaning under the weight of books about the druids of pre-Christian Ireland and so on. But we know nothing, almost nothing about them. We know almost nothing about the pre-Christian religion in Ireland. And anything we think we know, we probably shouldn't trust because who are the people who are telling us about this, this religion? I mean, they tend to be Christians. After Christian writing in Ireland begins to take off, which is probably not until about 600 AD, so at a time, in other words, when there weren't many, there hadn't been many what we used to call pagans in Ireland, probably not many non-Christians, practitioners of the pre-Christian religion around, thinking back 100 years or 150 years as to what that religion involved, it cannot be believed. Most of it probably can't. So to my mind, I'm sorry to offend some of our listeners who might be interested in sort of the Celtic religions and Celtic society in Ireland, but so much of it has been mediated to us through Christian sources that there's a lot of bias in it, and there's a lot of imagination in it. And as a man, I'm a boring old. Political historian, and I, I tend to take it all with a pinch of salt, I have to say.
0: Okay, so speaking about the religion, then, how influential was the church throughout the Middle Ages in Ireland?
3: The introduction of Christianity into Ireland was an extraordinarily formative event. I mean, I have been teaching medieval Irish history in university for the last, you know, since before you were born, I think, Emily. And when I go in on the first day and I tell people that today we are going to talk about the introduction of Christianity into Ireland. I can see their faces, and their faces are sinking. And this, you know, They're saying, oh my God, no, I came to Trinity College, Dublin, to get away from religion. So I had to explain to them you know, that the arrival of Christianity into Ireland is not just a religious phenomenon, it was a cultural phenomenon, because that is the point of when we became part of the European mainstream. And it is literally the case that Irish history begins with the arrival of Christianity. The very first date in the history of Ireland is the year 431 AD, because there's a chronicle written by a man called Prosper of Aquitaine, and in that chronicle, he explains that he was in Rome in 431, and he tells us that the then Pope Pope Celestine sent a man called Palladius to Ireland to be the first bishop to the Irish who believe in Christ. And so we literally have a date, an event that we can attach a date to in Irish history. So that is how pivotal or important the arrival of Christianity into the country is. And so Ireland's story is interwoven with that relationship with Rome. You know, the Irish in 431 became the first people in the Latin West to be the recipients of a papal mission. And that connection is very strong between the two ever since after that. So Christianity is central to Irish life, but again, it doesn't do to be, you know, we always have to remember in history about the sources that we're using, where we are getting our information from. And in the early Middle Ages, almost without exception everywhere, the people doing the writing are clerics. So, you know, if the only people telling you about religion are the religious, you may be, you know, you obviously you have been. To an extent, their importance is being exaggerated to an extent because they make it seem as if they are at the center of everything when even though it may have been the case that for, for large numbers of people, it was, you know, something you worried about at the point of death, but not necessarily your every waking moment. But it was a crucially important thing because the fact is, as historians, we are a you know prisoner of our sources. We are dependent on them. If we were dependent on the writings of non-religious writers for the history of Europe in the earlier Middle Ages, we'd have nothing. It would be virtually silent. So we've got to, you know, make the most of it and see what what it can tell us. But try always to use our own common sense in reading between the lines.
0: To give examples, what would you say are some of our major sources for this period?
3: Well, I mentioned these things called annals that are incredibly rich from early medieval Ireland. And they are, to begin with, at least they're in Latin and then increasingly in the vernacular. So it is an extraordinary thing to be able to say, pick a year, any year in Ireland from the year, say, 600 to 1600. Pick any year in that and you will get in our annals, a list of all of the important things that happened in that year. Now, I say all the important things, all the things that the contemporary clerical writers thought were important, but very good on, besides sort of religious things and battles, deaths of important people, very good as well nowadays for things that we are interested in, like climate, you know, because these are recording, you know, storms and good harvests and bad harvests, rain and cold weather and droughts and all the rest of it. So they're fantastic for that kind of thing. So that's one very valuable, sort of relatively easy type of source to use because they're all available and you can get them online translated into English. It's an amazing resource. We also have a very large body of secular law from early medieval Ireland, things called the Brehon Laws, which are incredibly an incredibly rich resource. I mean, the laws that were passed to deal with Practically every phenomenon under the sun, you know there's an entire law to do, I mean just you know pick something at random about beekeeping. You know what are the rules that apply? If I have a hive of bees and my bees go into your garden and, and start you know, taking the nectar from your plants, I owe you compensation for doing that, obviously, because that's, that's an appalling offense. And so there's a law that deals with that. There's a law to deal with my dog. You know, what happens if you kill my dog? Presumably the dog is being used to herd my sheep or whatever. So the compensation that's due to me, if you kill my dog, there's a law about cats. It's a massive collection of material. It was edited without a translation, unfortunately, about 10, 15 years ago. And it I think it's in five or six massive volumes. Huge corpus of legislation. So these things called the Brehon laws, the ancient Uh, Secular laws of of Ireland, they date from about 700, 750, that period. So that that is an, an extraordinary collection. And then the other thing I would mention, because we have a huge collection of them, are saga materials, the ancient myths and legends of Ireland. We have huge volumes of them from the Middle Ages, of telling the lives of very extraordinary people who probably never lived, but they are assumed to have lived in the sort of Iron Age of Ireland before. The arrival of Christianity. So it's incredibly rich. Field for study. There's a magnificent website. It's in University College Cork. It's called CELT, C E L T, the Corpus of Electronic Texts. And they've been running it there for about 35 years now, set up by Professor Donohoe Curran. And you can go onto that and entirely free of charge, you can get all of these texts and get access to them, most of them in translation. And so you should have a look at that. So UCC CELT, the CELT, the Corpus of Electronic Texts, is a fabulous resource.
0: Now, I have so much to ask you from that question, but firstly, I'm going to ask, you mentioned after Latin about the vernacular. Now, this is a question we have from Daphne on Facebook, who was asking, what was the language of Ireland? Uh, Were there varieties?
3: Well, it depends on the period that we're talking about. Insofar as we can tell, in the early Middle Ages in Ireland, there was only one language on the island of Ireland, and that's what called the Gaelic language, what Irish people call the Irish language, what's generally called the Gaelic language. There are some traces of Britonic in early medieval Ireland. So in modern parlance, that is, was the ancestor of, of modern Welsh, the Welsh language, because there were very close connections between Ireland and Wales in the early Middle Ages. There seems to be that one single language that existed there, which is a cousin, you know, the Gaelic language is a cousin language. If you do a family tree of, of world languages, Gaelic is what's called Q-Celtic, and Welsh is what's called P-Celtic, and they're quite closely. They were one language, certainly about two and a half thousand years ago, which gradually drifted apart. From about 800 onwards, Ireland was subject to Scandinavian attack, the people we tend to call the Vikings. And so there is some old Norse being spoken in Ireland, in the communities there, which were Scandinavians settled. And then, of course, in the 12th century, Ireland was conquered by England. Some of the upper echelons of that group spoke French, and so they introduced French to the island. Others amongst them were people who, had very remarkably, were from Flanders in the Low Countries, had been settled in South Wales by Henry I, and then from South Wales moved to Ireland and brought Flemish into Ireland, which lasted certainly for a generation or two in certain parts of the coast, quite close to southwest Wales. There were native Welsh speakers who came to Ireland in in the late 12th century, bringing the Welsh language uh, with them, but the majority of the settlers were speakers of english and brought the english language with them so the english language has been spoken in ireland you know for 850 years now so in the later middle ages it's a whole melting pot of languages but the two main spoken languages are irish or gaelic and english
0: now the other question that came to me as we were talking about the sources was one from jordan sole on facebook who asked about magic, folklore and myth, and what role did these play in everyday life?
3: Well, it's very hard for us to tell what role they played in everyday life, but we have a large collection of literary materials that survive from medieval Ireland that are mythological in tone, very, very rich collections of material now, these are what might otherwise call saga literature, talking about individuals who are assumed by their audiences to have been real. yet the stories are are for the most part set in the pre-Christian past. So they're describing an Ireland kind of a heroic age that existed in Ireland's Iron Age you know so the I mean the probably the most famous of them is the tale called the Táin Bó which means the cattle raid of Cooley Cooley being a place a peninsula in the, on the east coast of Ireland but halfway between Dublin and Belfast and it describes the doings of a, a mythical queen of Connacht in the west of Ireland called Maeve and this pursuit of this brown bull this famous brown bull It's a very remarkable story and became a kind of a national epic for Ireland. And, you know, even though it's set in the centuries before the introduction of Christianity, it is referring to warfare between the different provincial kings of the country, between the men of Connacht and the men of Ulster, that kind of thing. So there is a very large mythological corpus that survives from it. We have to assume that there's a non-written folklorish element there as well, but that has not come down to us. So there is a huge collection of material that's relating to Irish folklore that has been preserved now into the 21st century. This is from people who went around gathering folktales 100 years ago, over the course of the last 100 or 150 years. How long earlier than that it dates from, we do not know because it wasn't written down until gathered by folklore collectors in the last 150 years or so. But it, it is assumed to be the case that there was, in Ireland, as in all societies, a you know, in the days when people had nothing else to do in the evening, when you know, when they weren't sitting watching Netflix or something in the evening, they were telling stories. So there's a the very rich tradition of that, and a lot of this is. Magical of its nature, because you know you need something to get you through the winter somehow. So it's a very vibrant thing, and it's a wonderful thing. So I would urge our listeners to to engage with it by all means.
0: I wonder whether I could ask you to tell us maybe a couple of other popular myths or traditions that stem from this time.
3: Well, I mean, many of the Irish myths are ones that are related to the many saints of Ireland. There's a very huge number of vernacular saints in the country, many more so in Ireland than in contemporary England, for example. I mean, if you were to draw up a list of all of the saints of early medieval England, there are a number of them, but not as many as there seem to be in Ireland for whatever reason. Now, most of these are not saints in the sense that we would regard them as such today, i.e. saints who have been canonized by Rome. These are holy men and holy women who revered in their communities, about whom lives were written, so hagiographical work was written that describes the miracles performed by these saints. So one of the other bodies of literature that is very extensive from early medieval Ireland are saints' lives. There's a huge corpus of them. And it's not just about people like St. Patrick, but various lives of St. Bridget, for instance, who was the patroness of, of Ireland, the sort of female equivalent of the apostle of Ireland, St. Patrick, and lots of other saints around the country. There's a huge corpus of collections about them, and many of the materials are of a folklorish nature because they're describing the cures that the, the saint would provide for various diseases, the way in which if you suffer from X or Y or Z, the saint to pray to for that is St. A or B or C, because they have the cure for it. And that kind of devotion continues in Ireland until the present day. People will go to the shrine of a particular saint, even in the 21st century, because that saint is known to be able to cure you from some ailment, either a physical ailment or, or a mental ailment. So they're considered to be extraordinarily potent in that way.
0: Now, I have completely led you off track. And we were talking about a timeline. So I suppose we should come back to that a little bit. We left where we were starting to talk about Christian Ireland. And I suppose the next bits I'd like to ask you about are about when the Vikings invaded and then the Normans. I suppose, could you tell us about these particular invasions and what they meant for Ireland?
3: They are the two historic invasions of Ireland, in the sense that the first Viking invasion around the year 800. And if you go back in Irish records and in the archaeological evidence to try to find the last time before then that Ireland was invaded, in inverted commas, or was at the receiving end of a large influx of newcomers, you're probably going back about 1,500 years before then to when the speakers of the Celtic language, the Gaelic language, arrived into Ireland. So when the Scandinavians began to appear here in Ireland, it was much the same way that they did on the island of Britain, in the northwest of Scotland in particular, and then Scandinavians from further south in what became the Danelaw in England, and much the same as they did in northwestern France, so that they create the thing that became Normandy, the land of the Northmen. They sought to do the same in Ireland. If you live on the west coast of Norway, I don't know how often you've been to the west coast of Norway, but at this time of the year, it's fairly bleak and unrelenting. Even Ireland, to them, seems to have appeared like a paradise. So they, naturally enough, sought out new lands for themselves. I don't believe the, the suggestions of some modern scholars that they never attempted to conquer Ireland. Of course they did. I mean, it was a large, fertile island on the western seaboard of Europe, so there were rich opportunities there, and they they made extensive efforts to conquer the island. But the biggest legacy overall was not the colonies that they established there in the rural. Regions of Ireland throughout the Irish countryside, it is in those little enclaves along the coast that became Ireland's first towns. Because in the period before the arrival of the Vikings, there was no city in Ireland, there was no town in Ireland, there wasn't even a village in Ireland. And this, I think, is a product of the the non conquest by the Romans, you know, because the Romans are the great urbanizers of Europe. If you're not conquered by Rome, you don't have any towns or cities, and the Irish didn't. But Dublin, is a Viking town. Cork is a Viking town. Limerick is a Viking town. Waterford, Wexford. So those towns were established by people from Scandinavia on the seaboard of Ireland and became Viking enclaves and in time, Ireland's first towns. And they tended to conquer the hinterland of those areas as well, the countryside surrounding them. But they were important mainly as being for being the origins of the Irish urban tradition and must have played a considerable part in things like trade, for example. So if you're a Christian country, I mean, the one thing you need is wine for the mass. And so the wine that's coming into Ireland is coming from Western France. And in the era after the establishment of the Viking towns in Ireland, presumably that wine was coming in by trade in that way. So the Vikings, they did play a significant part in Irish history, but I think not pivotal. They always re- remained a minor force in Irish society. I mean, they did certainly introduce the Irish to better ways of shipping. Because, you know, we all know about the cliches about Viking sea vessels. They probably did increase the Irish military capacity, you know, the Viking armor and swords and so on. All of those cliches are true. But in the political context, not massively important. The big, big turning point in Irish history in terms of conquests and new arrivals is in the 12th century when we were conquered by one of our nearest neighbours, the English. So Irish history really, I mean, if you look at the entire history of Ireland from the year 1169 onwards, when the first of the English adventurers or Anglo-Norman adventurers began to arrive in Ireland. The entire dynamic of Irish history since then has been supplied from that event. I mean, you know, it is the reason why there is a thing called the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Until 100 years ago, it was the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland. It's that constitutional connection, if you like, with our neighboring island was established at that point. So massively transformative thing in Irish history and the whole dynamic of Ireland ever since has been supplied by that.
0: So what was the cause of it? And could you tell us a little bit about what was the lordship of Ireland?
3: The causes of England's conquest of Ireland are, in one sense, they're local and in another sense, they are national. I mean, they're local to the extent that one of these many Irish provincial kings I mentioned earlier, when he got into a bit of trouble in Ireland, went to England and recruited assistance from England, which culminated in a conquest of Ireland by England. But they are national and international in a broader sense because in the contemporary king of England Henry II, very significant a man, a man who, you know, held as much land in France as he did in Britain was a very imperialistic individual. And when the opportunity came to him to add Ireland to the many other colonies he was busy assembling at that point, he did not turn down that opportunity. And it was quite a significant thing. I mean, Henry II was the King of England from 1154 until 1189. Quite a domineering individual and with a lot of fingers in a lot of different pies. It's very noticeable the extent to which the when he dies in 1189, and the chroniclers are recording his great achievements, I mean, one of the things that they, almost without exception, they all tell us is that uh, he conquered Ireland, which they then say even the Romans never managed to do. So this is how great a King Henry II is. So, I mean, from that point on, he is the man who established a constitutional link, if you like, to use modern parlance between Ireland and England, that link between the two, which has existed in one form or another ever since. So the mid-12th century is is a real turning point in terms of the relations between England and Ireland through the centuries.
0: Emma Hines on Facebook has asked a little bit about this, and she's asked about Gerald of Wales's attitude towards the Irish, and perhaps what this can tell us about perceptions of the Irish at this
3: time. Yes, I mean Gerald of Wales, Geraldus Cambrensis, is a really extraordinary man. I mean, he was sort of half Welsh, half Norman, came from South Wales, and his family were involved in the early stages of the English arrival into Ireland. Because the Irish king who triggered that invasion, he was a man called Diarmuid MacMurrah, He was the king of Leinster, which is a province in south of Dublin, from Dublin southwards in the southeast corner of Ireland. Necessarily, when he was looking to Britain for assistance, the part of Britain closest to him was Wales and the southwest of England. So he went to Wales, and he many of the people that he recruited to help him to recover his kingdom when he'd been expelled from it in Ireland, were Normans who had settled in Wales and mixed in with the Wales. So they're sometimes referred to as Cambro-Normans, so from Cambria, the Latin for Wales. And some of them, many of them, were close relatives of Gerald of Wales, Geraldus Cambrensis. And when Henry II came to Ireland and conquered it, claimed that he was Ireland's lord, he had to provide an inheritance for his all of his children. And the youngest, his youngest, that's said to have been his favourite was the future King John. And so he decided that he would set John up as King of Ireland. And in 1185, he sent him off to Ireland with the intention that he stay there and be king of this new country. And he sent Gerald of Wales with him. To write up the glorious story of the English conquest of Ireland. So, Geralis Comprensis is actually the man who, I suppose, in an Irish context, is more important than in any other context. He wrote the first two books that were ever written about Ireland. You fill the largest library in the world with, seems to me, with books on the subject of Ireland nowadays. But None existed until Gerald of Wales, and he wrote two of them. One is an actual political history, if you like, of that conquest, Henry the Second coming to conquer the island and so on, and of his own relatives, the great actions of them in it. But the other one is a book which is called the Topographia Hiberniae. It's a kind of an anthropological work that's describing what the island looks like and about the flora and the fauna of it, but also describing the Irish people. Uh, and what, what they're like. Gerald was a church man who was very heavily involved in efforts to reform the church and weed out what were considered to be bad practices, or things that were inconsistent with contemporary church policy in the late uh, 12th century. So in this book, he cast the Irish in a very bad light and described them as being barbarians, not much more than savages, completely uncivilized But he did have an agenda. I mean, his brother was one of the early conquerors of Ireland, and many of the generation of conquerors were his kinsmen. So, I mean, his agenda was basically to say that what they did in Ireland, because there were a lot of contemporaries who objected to the English conquest of Ireland. Because remember, this is the age of the Crusades, and there was a feeling that, yes, it's okay for Christians to go off and fight the infidel, to conquer lands from the infidel, but to fight, your fellow Christian, to make war on your fellow Christians. That is not something to be condoned. And so justification had to be provided for that. And Gerald wrote this book, which made the Irish out to be akin to infidels, you know, to be sort of, as he, I think he put it in one of his work, you know, it's sort of Christian in name, but pagan in practice. So the idea is that what we have done thus far, was necessary, because we have to conquer the Irish in order to civilize them. But also, what we're doing is good, and you should get on board yourself. And if you haven't moved to Ireland, it's an El Dorado. Get over there, and you will find a good life to be had. So there's that kind of very ingrained agenda in what he's doing. So on the one hand, it's an extraordinarily interesting book, this book, the Topographia Hibernia. On the other hand, it's propaganda designed to justify the conquest of Ireland by its neighbour.
0: So take a look at the other side then. What was the experience of the average Irish person at this time?
3: Well, I mean, the, the experience of the Irish was inevitably expropriation and conquest. I mean, when the English came into Ireland in the later 12th century, it was to conquer lands. Some historians have attempted to say that, well, They were actually invited in originally. It was a dispossessed Irish king who was the first to invite them into Ireland. And therefore, can you really call that conquest? Well, I mean, Gerald, I mentioned Gerald's book, Topographia Hibernia. His other book was called Expugnatio Hibernica. Expugnatio means conquest. So they were coming to Ireland to conquer it. And if you were the Irish you know you were a victim of conquest now it's probably the case that if you were what well, you know what we would call an ordinary person in the middle ages what is an ordinary person an ordinary person is probably a tenant on a farm you know somebody who spends their life attuned to nature you know sowing in the spring and harvesting in the autumn and so on and you know you could argue Well, does it matter if your boss, you know, if the lord over you is an Irishman or is one of these new English arrivals into the country? Does that matter? So I suppose it is the case that it might not necessarily have mattered massively to the bulk of the population, but to, you know, the the lords of Ireland were pushed aside to make room for the lords of England. So there was a massive dispossession of them from their Previous position of authority, and it is the case, I think, ultimately that you know we are all subject to the law in one form or another. Prior to the Anglo-Norman conquest of Ireland, the Irish had had their own law, this Brehon law system that I referred to earlier. When the English came into Ireland, they brought the English common law into Ireland. And the Irish were, for the most part, insofar as as we can tell, throughout the rest of the Middle Ages, beyond the law, you know, were not amenable to the law. That law did not extend to them. That meant that there were probably some, there was probably a gray area to begin with, but ultimately, there developed in Ireland quite a hard divide between the newcomers into the island and the indigenous population who had been there. And the latter were undoubtedly discriminated against. And the law that was established in the country was a law for the English settlers, not for the native Irish, which is what led to the gradual erosion of confidence on the part of the Irish in the new English dispensation, and ultimately to Irish unwillingness to accept English lordship. You were asking me, Emily, about this idea of the lordship of Ireland in this period. And it stems from the fact that when Ireland had been conquered by the English, Henry II gave Ireland to his son John. And his intention had been that John would become king. But John proved himself such a king of Ireland. He was Henry's fifth son. Henry had hoped that he would become the ruler of a separate kingdom of Ireland because Ireland had always had its own native king. But John was such a disaster in Ireland that he was never crowned king of Ireland. Even though a crown arrived from Rome so that he could be crowned in Ireland, it never happened. And he was only ever, therefore, lord of Ireland. And it wasn't until Henry VIII, in 1541, Henry VIII had himself proclaimed king of Ireland. So, for the period from the Anglo Norman arrival of Henry II into Ireland in 1171 until 1541, so you know, 400 odd years, Ireland just was their lordship of Ireland. So, there's a famous book. Wonderful book written on the subject, which is called The Lordship of Ireland in the Middle Ages. I remember when I was a kid seeing this, wondering what on earth is the Lordship of Ireland? Basically, it's a book that would have been called The Kingdom of Ireland if John had ever been made king and his heirs and descendants. But Ireland ceased to be a kingdom under English rule until, for religious reasons as much as political, under Henry VIII, it was eventually erected again into a kingdom in the 16th century.
0: So, Sean, as a final question to you, what would you like listeners to take away from this episode?
3: Well, Emily, that's a big question. I mean, we have been covering 1,100 years or so of Irish history. So it's a complex subject, needless to say. Obviously, the thing I'd like people to, uh, to take away is the fact that they've got to learn more about it. It's an incredibly rich and exciting subject, but also a very complicated subject. And the thing that I always I tell my students about most is that... My students come to university to study modern Ireland and they think they can find the answers to modern Ireland in modern Ireland, but you can't. If you're interested in in the central dynamic of Irish history has been supplied by our relationship with our neighbouring island over the millennia. You know, it's not just England. It's our relationship with Scotland. I mean, the Irish, we feel we are practically Scots. We feel a very close bond to the Scots' For ancestral reasons. That the origins of that go back uh, through the centuries. We have a very close connection with Wales through the millennia as well. It is probably the case that the Gaelic language came to us from what is now Wales, you know, two and a half millennia ago. But most importantly of all, I suppose, you know, the fact of that peculiar little twenty first century phenomenon. Anomaly, the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. You cannot understand that. You cannot understand what makes these kingdoms and the countries making up this archipelago unless you go back into the Middle Ages. You won't find all the answers there, but you'll have a better understanding of it. You know, you cannot understand the 21st century without the 20th. and You cannot make sense of the 20th without the 19th. So use your head. I mean, the 19th needs the 18th, and it's it's going to take you back to the Middle Ages. So I started out, like most people, a student interested in modern history, and then I discovered that none of the answers were available unless I went back to the Middle Ages. So that's my message to our listeners. Get back. If you can understand the Middle Ages, you will understand the modern, because these are the foundations of our modern world.
0: That was Sean Duffy, Professor of Medieval Irish History at Trinity College Dublin. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by
1: Daniel Kramer.